to Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon podcast class. This is class number three, The Doctrine of the Atonement in the Book of Mormon. So topic number one, Jesus in the Book of Mormon. We spent some time last week talking about the one-on-one nature of Christ. You don't get that in the Bible, do you? You get little glimmers as he sees individuals, but what the one of the great gifts of the Book of Mormon is this one-on-one until they all nature of Jesus. That he is mind, he manifests himself to every nation, is mindful of every people, remembers every creature. He blesses and prays for every child. So he knows you. He cares about you. You are as connected to him as anyone else. So now let's ask the question, what did he do? What did he really do? I love that Christians love him. I love that Christians love Jesus. They don't know what he fully did. They understand he did something significant. That's why the cross is so so significant, because that's the moment they see him doing something significant. The problem is the doctrine of the atonement got lost in the Bible during the apostasy. And so one of the great gifts of the Book of Mormon and one of the great responsibilities we have is to help people understand what did he do? What did he accomplish? So today we're going to take a look at the Book of Mormon's teaching of the doctrine of the atonement. What did he really accomplish and how does it make a difference in my life? We'll see if we can put last week, though he knows me, with what he what he came to know in the atoning sacrifice. We'll see if we can put those together today. So we're going to start in the Book of Mormon. Start in 2 Nephi chapter 2. One of the great contributions of our doctrine is 2 Nephi chapter 2, where Father Lehi explains the plan. But there is one word. I think one of the great contributions of the Book of Mormon is one word. Um, again, I love that Christians love Jesus. But as I've talked to many Christians, what did he do? And they can't really answer that question. What did Christ accomplish? Well, I know he suffered. Why did he suffer? I don't know. I know that his suffering saves me. So let's see if we can put some meat on those bones and understand what did he do and why does it matter to me? So Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi chapter 2. So I need someone to read verse 7. Sorry, let me get there. Anyone want to read for me? Behold, he offered himself a sacrifice for sin to answer... Okay, hold on. I'm going to pause you. See that word to? Do you understand what the word to does here? He offers himself a sacrifice for... He's going to suffer. To. This is what it accomplishes. This is why he suffered. Now, a lot of Muslims have kind of criticized Christians for believing in this sorrowing Savior, the the bleeding Messiah, the one that has to die. They don't understand why God needs someone to suffer in order to save his children. Doesn't that limit the power of God? Why can't God just save his children? Why does he need a suffering servant to do it? Well, there's an answer to that. He has to suffer. Why? What's the answer? Our Heavenly Father obeys law. God obeys law. 
And either the law is answered or the law has a claim on us. And the only way to free us from the claim of the law is to answer the law. Jesus suffered to answer the ends of the law. Otherwise, the law claims us. And if God saves us from the law, then God does not obey law. And he ceases to be God. Heavenly Father obeys law. And the law has a requirement on us. So Jesus suffered to answer the ends of the law. Notice how it repeats it. The whole purpose of the atonement was to answer the ends of the law. So let me just, let, let's play on that phrase. How does Jesus answer the ends of the law? If I were to just say, okay, here's the law. What does it mean to answer the law? I'm driving in my car and the law says 55. What does it mean to answer the law? I drive 55. So one, one thing this means, Jesus answers the ends of the law. The only way he can save us is if he does what? Obeys every single commandment that ever existed. If Jesus sins, can he save us from the law? Because then he's subject to, he has to be completely above the law. So that to me is astounding to talk about him. Did he ever say a wrong word? Think a wrong thought, have a wrong attitude. If he breaks the law in any way, can he answer to the law? He has broken the law. So just in a tribute to who he was, there was no aspect of the law he didn't fully obey. How many ways can you sin? You don't even have to say it to sin it, right? You, don't, you can do it, you can say it, you can think it, but how many other ways can you sin? Attitude, desires, thoughts, and in every one of those, Jesus answered the ends of the law. That is just astounding to me. The respect he deserves for accomplishing that, he conquered the law in every aspect. So number one, he obeys every single aspect of the law. Now tell me how's another way I answer the law. Number one, it says 55, I go 55. What's another way I answer the law? If I don't go 55, I answer the penalty of the law. Jesus has to answer the ends of the law. He has to be punished as if what? He has to live obedient to every single aspect of the law and be punished as if what? He broke every single commandment that ever existed. And even then, that's not really true, because if we were to count every commandment, that would be a finite number. How far does he have to take his answering the law? Now, we, we got to talk about that concept. We can't fully have this concept if we don't talk about infinity. The Book of Mormon repeatedly, at least six times, uses the word infinity or infinite when it talks about atonement. So we've got to understand everything that he does is infinite. 
His obedience had to be infinite. His punishment had to be infinite. That's astounding. Now we're going to do infinity in two directions. Infinity in breadth and infinity in depth. His answering the ends of the law has to be infinite this direction and infinite this direction. Emily. Um, I just have a question. When you talk of the law, what is... I don't know, what's going through my head right now is if God is all power and God answers to the law, what is the law? The law is the set of instructions he's given us to be happy. It's everything that he says we need to do to be happy. So for example, can I violate the law of chastity and be eternally happy? No. So the law says, here are the things you cannot do in terms of the law of chastity. There are attitudes I can't have and shouldn't have. There are words I shouldn't say. There are things I shouldn't think. All of that is given to us by the law. It's Heavenly Father saying, here is the road to happiness. Here is what I do and what I don't do. It's what makes me happy. That made me think of one of Russell Nelson's talks because he was a heart surgeon. He kind of talks in depth about how the heart has certain laws that it abides by and the heart can't function unless it participates within the law that it's, I guess, predicated on. So it can not function at all and things can go wrong, but there's the law and it has to function within a certain number of valves or beats per minute and stuff, but there's no other way that it can function unless it abides by the one law it has in order to function. Yeah. And we could even, I mean, if we want, let's explore that just a little bit, because I think you've asked an intriguing question. Go to section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, because I think we can divide the law into multiple pieces, and I really love how the Doctrine and Covenants does it. Section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants suggests that how many laws are there? Well, we can do it. Let's just jump right to verse 34. Section 88, verse 34. Again, verily I say unto you that that which is governed by law is preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by law. If I live a celestial law, what does the law do? If I govern myself, if I am governed by the law, so the law of the celestial kingdom dictates exactly how I live my life. If I am governed by the celestial law, what will the celestial law do to me? It will preserve me. It will perfect me and sanctify me. Only if I do what? Do you see the condition? Now he gets a little bit, he, get, he, goes, he gives us a little bit more clarity back in verse, say, 22. Well, let's start in 20. Let's start in 21. They who are not sanctified through the law, which I have given unto you, even the law of Christ must inherit another kingdom even that of a terrestrial kingdom and that of a telestial kingdom. 
For he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. So to have this celestial glory, what do I do? Live the celestial law. All of the rules, all of the instructions, all of the gospel of the celestial kingdom is the law. But where else is there a law? 23. He who cannot abide the law of a terrestrial kingdom cannot abide a terrestrial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a telestial kingdom cannot abide a telestial glory. Therefore, he is not meet for a kingdom of glory. Therefore, he must abide a kingdom which is not a kingdom of glory. See the law? So if I seek a celestial glory, I have to submit to a celestial law. But I haven't always done that, have I? In learning to be celestial, do I sometimes break celestial laws and terrestrial laws and even telestial laws? And that is the reason for the atonement, is he answers the ends of those laws. Charlie? Chastity? Yes, okay. Uh, <laughs> let's that. that. I mean, you can't enter in his kingdom of glory anymore. It means the law has claim on me until what? The law has claim on me until he answers the law. So let's go back. He is going to answer the claim that the law has on me. Therefore, the law will have no claim on me because he paid it. He answered the ends of the law. So let's watch it. Let me wa- let's watch what he does. But that's a great question. What is the law? But every kingdom, I love that he says there isn't a kingdom that doesn't have a law. Um, there is verse 36. All kingdoms have a law given. Now we put all those laws together. And what does Jesus have to do? He has to obey every single one of them. Was Jesus worthy of the celestial kingdom? Clearly, terrestrial. Did he obey every single celestial law? When he was 12? Yep. Now he has to be punished as if what? He broke every single one of them. He has to pay the penalty for every single one of them, which is a little bit misleading because if I were to sum up them, if I were to sum them up, that would be a finite number. What does he really have to pay? An infinite payment. It is false doctrine to say Jesus suffered the sum of our sins. Sometimes people say, well, if I had sinned one less sin, his suffering would have been less. Is that doctrinally true? No, his, he didn't suffer the sum of our sins because what kind of atonement would that have been? A finite, limited atonement. How many people can he save with a limited atonement? A limited number of people. So his atonement is going to be infinite, which means his obedience has to be and his punishment has to be. So let's watch that. Let's do that. Let's ask the question, what does the law demand? If I break the law of chastity, What does the law of chastity demand of me? 
as payment for breaking the law. Well, that's, what, that's his request. That's not what he paid. That's what he asked, right? What did he pay? Let's ask the question, what, does the law, what did the law demand of him? So again, we're turning to the Book of Mormon. I'm going to let the Book of Mormon answer the questions. So Mosiah chapter 2, verse 38. Give me one thing that the book, that the, according to the Book of Mormon, what does the law demand of sin? Not what does Jesus demand to overcome sin. What does the law demand of sin? Let's go to 38. Anyone want to read? Please, Ashley. Okay, there it is. There it is. What's the demand? What does justice demand? What is one main thing that the law demands for sin? Not a guilty feeling. This is not what, oh, I feel guilty. I stole a candy bar. I feel guilty. No, no. This is an eternal payment to justice of guilt. And what will one person's guilt look like? Finish that, Ashley. Now that is how many, how, that's how much guilt. That's one person's payment to guilt. And none of you have paid that yet. None of you have even come close to hitting that payment. I may feel guilty when I sin, but it doesn't compare to this. This is what would happen if I don't repent. If I don't choose Jesus, I will pay this penalty. I will pay that level of guilt that would cause one man to shrink. Now, how much guilt does Jesus pay? Infinite. If one man's guilt does this to him, what does infinite guilt do to Jesus? One more description. Flip the page to chapter 3, verse 25. One more. Actually, will you, mind keep, will you read again? Chapter 3, verse 25. What will one man's guilt be like if they don't repent? So if that is one person's payment, what did Jesus pay? Now he pays an infinite guilt. Now I don't, I don't want to dwell on what he paid. I want to look at it as a payment to something he bought. What did Jesus buy when he paid an infinite guilt? That's what I want to focus on each time. Let's look at what was the payment and what was the purchase? If he paid all of justice's demands on us, what did he buy? Turn to Moroni chapter 7, Book of Mormon, Moroni 7, 27. One of the most beautiful passages of the Book of Mormon. What did Jesus buy with an infinite payment to justice of guilt. All right, 27. Anyone want to read it? I just think this is one of the most beautiful passages of the Book of Mormon. Savannah, if you don't mind. Therefore, my beloved brethren, have mere 
Here we go. Ready? When God, when Christ went back to heaven, tell me what he did. Keep going, Savannah. One more time. You just got to say that one more time. It's just such a beautiful phrase, right? Jesus bought what? The rights of mercy. He bought the rights of mercy, which he hath upon the children of men. He paid dearly for it, didn't he? But Jesus bought the rights of mercy. So how much mercy can he offer? That is the doctrine we have to understand. By paying an infinite price, he bought infinite rights of mercy. And I love this. No way Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon and suddenly connected this back to 2 Nephi chapter 2, where he never went back and checked the text. To whom can Jesus offer the rights of mercy? For he hath answered the ends of the law and claimeth all those who have faith in him. How much mercy can he extend? Let's do it both directions. To how many people can he extend mercy? Could Heavenly Father have a whole nother world? Another million worlds? To how many people can he extend mercy? There's one. And two, how much mercy can he extend to every single person? That's the doctrine. Is there anyone he can't save? Could he? Not will he, not should he. Could he save Lucifer? You better believe he can. Will Satan repent? No. Are there limits on the atonement side? There are limits on your side. There are not limits on his side. Are there sins he cannot forgive? He cannot forgive. There are not. Now, I believe that the devil has a doctrine he allows creep into your head, and he would suggest what to you? I know personally people have come to believe what? He can't save me. I'm too gone. Do you see the disservice you do to Christ when you believe that? You diminish the price he paid to claim you, to claim the rights of mercy upon you. There is no one outside of his grasp. And if you're not saved, it's because of you, not him. There are no limits to his atonement. It is infinite. And he has the rights of mercy. A couple fun phrases from the Book of Mormon. Turn to Alma chapter 24. I love this one. What do the anti-Nephi-Lehi's call themselves? before Jesus saved them. Alma chapter 24, verse 11. I love this phrase. What do the anti-Nephi-Lehi's call themselves? Can his atonement save the most lost? Yep. 
with any difficulty? Nope. He has claimed his rights of mercy. How about the sons of Mosiah and Alma? What were they called? Do you remember the phrase that described them? Mosiah chapter 28, verse 4. Is it 3 or 4? Mosiah 28, whoops, not 26. In verse 4, it says the vilest of sinners. That's the one. Can Jesus save the very vilest of sinners? That's the doctrine. Where did he get the rights of mercy that he claimed? He bought them by paying, by answering the end of the law. Because he answered the end of the law, he claims his rights of mercy. Any thoughts? Are any of you beyond saving? Are any of you outside of his reach? How far down into hell could he reach to save someone? All the way. Just like, it, you hear the word infinite atonement, but when you actually start to dive into it a little deeper, even obviously Satan would never accept repentance or that's just the way it is. But to think that Jesus Christ, had, his atonement has the capability to forgive someone who has basically caused the reasoning for all of our sin is just kind of astounding isn't it now just let me just make sure let me just clarify look at this verse in section 29 verse 44 they believe not unto damnation for they cannot be redeemed they cannot be redeemed from their spiritual fall because why the atonement can't save them? No, they cannot be redeemed because they'll never repent. But is the limiting factor on the Savior's side? No. Satan's fall is his fault. Charlie. Can you give us a question? What if you, like, the person hears this and they've repented or they think that they've repented? Which is everyone, right? Is that true of me? Is it true of you? <laughs> now, that, that's next week's class. Okay, come back next week and we'll do that one because the doctrine of Christ is teach me how to be saved. Okay, knowing that he atoned, how do I therefore save? Because I make so many mistakes. That's the next thing the Book of Mormon is going to teach us. Let me show you how to be saved. And the answer to next week's question is... Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a letter. And blessed are those who hear and receive, for they shall get more. We'll talk about that next week. Liam. I'm still kind of thinking about like the whole, like, he went to even save, like, Satan. I've kind of thought about that before. Like, could he save people, like, the one-third of heaven that, like, follow Satan? Or even people today that just, you know, maybe, I don't know, like, do they, like, really have all of eternity? So I'm like, if you have all of eternity to decide, is there, like, you have all of eternity, which is, like, infinite amount of time to, like, change. Like, you know, one day they probably maybe just kind of just go, man, 
this is not it. I'm done with this. And then maybe change course. I don't know. Because I can't imagine like being over there forever. I mean, eventually you'd have to like see everything Satan has to offer, which is not a lot at all. So says the celestial thinking person. <laughs> Guess what? Not everyone thinks that way. But I believe anyone who lives the celestial law, what will, what will living the celestial law do? Sanctify you into a celestial glory. But until they live the celestial law, they can never have that glory, right? Even though he's, he's paid the price to fix it, until they are governed by that law, they can't have that glory. Does that answer your question? Yeah. You looking for someone? Yeah, this is uh, Bryce Stanford. This is, I am Bryce Stanford. Okay, awesome. So I actually have to uh, leave right now. Okay. But I just had to make sure this is the right place. This is the right place. This is your, look at your class. It's fantastic. Tell us your name. <laughs> Thomas. Thomas, come back and join us next week. Great. Fantastic. We're looking forward to it. Okay, so let's, should we do another one? Let's do the next one because that's only one. That's only one thing that the law requires. The law demands justice. So he took that payment to an infinite level and claimed his rights of mercy. One of the greatest phrases of the Book of Mormon, that Jesus has claimed his rights of mercy. So I'm not going to be saved because I deserve it. I'm going to be saved because... He deserves it. And he's going to claim his rights of mercy upon me. Now, we'll see how that works in the next couple of classes. But let's do another one, because justice demands more than just guilt. Let's go back to Mosiah, King Benjamin's address again, Mosiah chapter 2. But this time, let's look at verse 36. What does the law demand when I fail to live it? When I do not obey the law of a celestial kingdom, the law of a terrestrial kingdom, even the law of a celestial kingdom. What does the law demand? Mosiah, so Book of Mormon, Mosiah chapter 2, verse 38. Anyone else want to read? No, 30, 36. Mosiah 2, 36. Anyone want to read for me? Yeah. Ian, please, go. And now I say unto you, my brethren, that after ye have known and have been taught all these things, if ye should transgress and go contrary to that which has been spoken, that ye do withdraw yourselves from the Spirit of the Lord, that it may have no place in you to guide you in wisdom's paths, that ye may be blessed, prospered, and preserved. And we've read this in a lot of scriptures, right? The Spirit can't dwell in unclean tabernacles. There is a law that says, if you break the law, if you violate the law, what do you do? I love the wording here. I think this is the best wording. The spirit doesn't withdraw from you. You withdraw yourself from the spirit. You cannot have the spirit when you break the law. You withdraw yourself from the spirit. You are alone from God. The law says you can't be with him. You cannot be with him right now because he has broken the law. So if Jesus answers that, so let's just simply say loss of spirit, loss of God's presence. What does Jesus have to answer? What is answering the ends of the law demand? Justice. 
He had to be completely, infinitely abandoned by God. He had to be kicked out of everything God has anything to do with and be completely alone. You have never even known loneliness like he's known. He looked around and God was gone. Jesus got kicked out of God's presence. When do we think this happened? There's a moment. There's a critical moment. Ashley? And it, yes, it happened in Gethsemane, but it culminated on the cross when he said, why, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Tell me what he must have been thinking in that moment. Lama Sabachthani. What must he have been thinking in that moment? He failed. And God was abandoning him. His father was turning his back on him. He was completely alone. He was kicked out of father's presence. Infinitely in darkness. That's a heavy price to pay, isn't it? Now, again, let's not dwell on the payment. Let's dwell on what he bought. I want you to think this one through. If the, if the law says when I sin, I have to, dep- I have to be withdrawn from, the God, from God. What other right did he claim? He can be with me even when the law says what? No, you can't. He bought what? What did he buy? The right to always be with me. Not just when the law says he can. He bought the right to be with me. So when I break the law, now clearly, does that mean he's always with me? No, I need to lose the spirit in order to repent. I need to feel a little guilt in order to repent. That's not what I'm trying to say. But does he have to wait till the law says he can come back into my life to come back into my life? How fast could he come back into my life? Now that introduces a fascinating word in the Book of Mormon. It only appears in the Book of Mormon. Turn with me to, and notice the only two people who use the word are Alma and Ammon. Alma and Ammon, two of the very vilest of sinners, use a fascinating word that only appears in the Book of Mormon. Turn to Mosiah chapter 27. Let's start with Alma. I'll show you both cases. Let's go to Mosiah chapter 27. Alma uses the word, and let me show you the word. Mosiah 27 such a beautiful word. You see it? I am snatched. That's a fascinating concept, isn't it? Tell me what image comes to mind. Liam? So what's Jesus doing? 
Alma, Alma, say the word, right? <laughs> just say the word. Just, you just say the word, man. I'm not coming until you say the word. But the second you say the word, tell me what Jesus did to Alma. He snatched him. How quickly did he run back into his life? I am snatched. Isn't that a fascinating concept? And Jesus bought that right. You say the word, Gwen. Say the word, Gwen, and I'm coming. You can't keep me away. The law can't keep me away. True or false? He's with me more than I deserve him to be with me. And what gave him that ability to do that? Because he was completely alone. Do you see what he bought? Let me show you this. So Alma says snatched. Um, in fact, he says, no, Ammon says it twice. Let's go to uh, Alma, tw Alma 26. So Mosiah 27, and then go to Alma chapter 26. This is where Am Ammon is rejoicing in all that God has done. And he says, 17. Who could have supposed that our God would have been so merciful as to have snatched us from our awful, sinful, and polluted state? Do you see what he bought? Do you see who he is? Do you understand the Messiah he became through atonement? Infinite rights of mercy. Infinite ability to be with me. Repent and I'll run and snatch you. Let's do another one. Now, it is my soul. Can I say it that way? Right to be with me. All right, I believe my own personal opinion is that was the payment for sin. That was answering the ends of the law. This one was completely voluntary. I don't know, I don't have any authority to say that, but I don't think he was done with this. I think this one he chose to do. I don't think he had to do this one. There is no indication in the scriptures that this was required to answer the ends of the law, but this he did. Turn with me to Alma chapter 11, or sorry, Alma chapter 7, verses, verse 11 and 12. Alma 7, 11 and 12. We're going to tackle these words one by one because if he, Alma 7, 11 and 12, if he, took if he took guilt to an infinite level, if he took um, uh, uh, being alone to an infinite level, let's tackle each one of these words one at a time. What's the first word? He suffered, tell me what's the word? Pain. Now notice the of every kind, of every kind. Now in the case of the Savior, what does this mean? This is a fancy way of saying infinite. Jesus took pain to an infinite level. So let's do our two versions. How many pains did he suffer? Every single pain. 
Let me just take as an example breaking my arm. How many ways did Jesus break his arm? An infinite number of ways. No matter how you could possibly break your arm, at every single age, at every angle, with every consequence, Jesus broke his arm every single way. And how long did he suffer every single break? How long was his arm broken in every single way? An infinite amount of time. Every single human pain. Has he been raped? Beaten up? Sexually abused? Every single human pain. So can he suffer one way for both of you? No. A totally different level. How about the next word? Name something that afflicts someone you love. Let's name some human afflictions. Anxiety. How many varieties of anxiety has Jesus felt? And how long did he suffer each level? Does he know social anxiety? Every one of them. Name another affliction. Depression. How depressed has he been? How many varieties of depression has he experienced? Addiction. To how many substances has he been addicted? And how addicted was he? Every one of them. Does he know? Has he been gay? Does he know what it's like to be attracted to the, uh, the same gender? How long did he spend in that state? You name it. Has he had a baby? Has he had a stillborn baby? Has he lost a child? Does he know the pain of not having a baby when you desperately want one? Temptation? How many temptations? And how tempted? Sickness? Mental? Emotional? Has Jesus suffered every single version of mental retardation? Has he been on the spectrum? How many steps along the way? Does he know schizophrenia? How long has he spent with every single one of those? A few minutes? 20 years? He shall take upon him death. He shall take upon him death. How many ways has he died? How many ways has he died? Everyone. How long did each death take? Cancer? Has he had cancer? 
COVID. Every death, is he suffocated? Crushed? I don't know what an infirmity is, but do you get the idea? Do you see what he paid? This was written to women, so it's, you know, imagine we could, we could say the same thing to men, but this was written to women. I just love how she states it. This was Cheko Okazaka, who was in the, the Relief Society president back in the 90s. I have kind of part of this quote. I love this. Jesus experienced the totality of mortal existence. I think that's such a beautiful phrase. Jesus experienced the totality of mortal existence in Gethsemane. It is our faith that he experienced everything, absolutely everything. Sometimes we don't think through the implications of that belief. We talk in great generalities about the sins of all humankind, about the suffering of the entire human family, but we don't experience pain in generalities. We experience it individually. That means Jesus know what it felt like when your mother died of cancer, how it was for your mother and how it still is for you. He knows what it felt like to lose the student body election. He knows the moment when the brakes locked and the car started to skid. He experienced the slave ship sailing from Ghana towards Virginia. Has he been a slave? He experienced the gas chambers of Ducao. He experienced napalm in Vietnam. Was he in the concentration camps? Did he go through a concentration camp? And how long did he spend there? An infinite number of time. He knows about drug addiction and alcoholism. There is nothing you have experienced as a woman that he does not know and recognize. On a profound level, he understands about pregnancy and giving birth. He knows about PMS and cramps and menopause. He understands about rape and infertility and abortion. He understands your mother pain when your five-year-old leaves for kindergarten, when a bully picks on your fifth grader, when your daughter calls to say that the new baby has Down syndrome. He knows your mother rage when a trusted babysitter sexually abuses your two-year-old, when someone gives your 13-year-old drugs, when someone seduces your 17-year-old. He knows the pain you live with when you, when you come home to a quiet apartment where the only children who ever come are visitors. When, you're, when you hear from your former husband that his new wife, that when you hear that your former husband and his new wife were sealed in the temple last week, when your 50th wedding anniversary rolls around and your husband has been dead for two years. He knows all that. He's been there. He's been lower than all of that. Do you see who he is? And do you see why we sing, I stand all amazed? So what did he buy? Pain, affliction, etc., etc. What did he buy? Back to Alma chapter 11, or sorry, 7. Back to Alma chapter 7, verse 12. Tell me what he bought with that pain. 
If an infinite payment of guilt bought the rights of mercy, if being completely alone, infinitely without God, bought the right to snatch me, what did suffering all human pain give him? Gwen? Okay, so let's read the verse, rest of verse 12. Anyone want to read? After picking up affliction, after the word affliction, read the rest of verse 12. Anyone want to read it for me? Yeah, just from the word affliction, Charlie. Just from affliction on. Sorry, no. Um, infirmities, that's the word. From the word infirmity. After the word infirmity. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Infirmities. Read from after that word. Okay, ready? Fill in that sentence. He knows how to sucker. Give me others. He knows how to comfort. Thank you. He knows how to comfort. He knows how to love. Relief. Say that again. Relief. Relief. He knows when to and when not to, right? So when does he come to them on the water? When does he walk? To Fourth watch. Fourth watch. That's 3 a.m. They start rowing at 6 p.m. and he comes to them at 3. Why doesn't he come at 2? Because what does he know? I know you've got another hour in you. Why doesn't he wait another hour? I know when you can't go any further. How does he know when I can't go any further? He's done that. Through my perspective. He knows when I can't go any further. He knows exactly when to save and when not to. Does he know how to judge me? Thank goodness he's the judge, isn't it? Thank goodness he's the judge. Does he know how to save me? Now, let me just, let's turn. Let's combine last week and this week. Does he know me? Does he know me? Does he know the whole human experience? What then can he do? Does he know which human experiences Bryce needs? Does he know how to put those together? When should I be born? What human challenges should I face? Does he know what human experiences I need to face in order to save me? Turn with me to Jacob chapter 5, the allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree. There's two ways to look at this. Jacob chapter 5. Now, when Jacob says in verse 3, I will liken thee, O house of Israel, unto a tame and a wild olive tree. Two possibilities for the thee, right? What are they? I will liken all of you to a tree. The story of Israel. 
or I will liken each of you. I will liken you to a tree. Now tell me about trees. They like to just grow their way. And this tree began to decay. Each one of you. Sweet, wonderful, you need some pruning. Let me help you. So round number one, tell me what he does in round number one. Does he know how much to prune? Does he know how much to dig and how much to nourish? And it's kind of gentle. It's so sweet. Snip, 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 snip. Teeny little Bryce. I'm just going to snip you right here. And then Bryce grows up. And pretty soon I'm not learning. I'm not headed in the right direction. I'm going to perish. And what does he say? I'm not going to lose this tree. So tell me what he does in verse 7. Because he loves me, because he knows me, because he knows what I need, what is he going to do? He's going to pluck me. Tell me what is the act of plucking? He's going to take something in my life that I love and yank it out. And every one of you have been plucked. Every one of you have something that you loved yanked out. And you screamed as he yanked it out. And you're saying, I don't understand. I thought he loved me. And then what's the next one? Go down to verse 9. Not only will he pluck, but he will. Tell me what's the act of grafting in. Something, maybe not better, but something I never thought I'd have to deal with. People I never thought I'd have to deal with. Cancers I never thought I'd, I never thought I'd have to deal with that. And he grafted it into my life. He plucks. He grafts. And then verse 11, one more. What does he do? Verse 13, sorry. He places. How many of you have been placed? How many of you thought my life was going just beautifully in this direction up in Idaho? And Jesus comes and says, Gwen. And it's the nethermost place he always places. The one place you never thought you'd go. I'm going on a mission to Reno, Nevada. I guarantee no little girl ever dreamed about going to Reno, Nevada on her mission. And that's exactly where she's going. And it's the best place in the world for her, but it's just not the place I ever dreamed I'd be. Have you been plucked, grafted, and placed? Now watch. A long time passed away. Let's go see the tree that got plucked and grafted. And what's happening? And what does he say? What does this man and this man who does this say about the plucking and the grafting? What does he say? If we didn't do it, we would have lost you. And I'm not going to lose you. I'm not going to lose you. 
Okay, so let's go to the, the one that got placed. Let's go way out there to the nethermost part. And what's going on with the one that got placed? Well, what's going on with the one that got placed? Much fruit and it was good. But the place was so bad, even the servant said what? The, the Lord's servant even said, why did you bring him here? Are you kidding? You brought him here? Look where he was growing and you brought him here. And five of my favorite words. Tell me what the man who knows me and the man who knows the human experience is going to say in every single one of our lives. Counsel me not. I knew. I know how to save you. I know what you need. If someone else's life would be better for you, what life would you have? That one. So tell me what your life is. Your best chance at salvation. Your life is your best chance at salvation. Because he knows every human experience. And he knows you. Do you see what he bought? Infinite rights of mercy. The ability to snatch you whenever you repent. And a personal savior who knows exactly what you need to be saved. That is Jesus of the Book of Mormon. Of him I bear testimony. A very real being who knows exactly what I need. He can comfort me, help me, strengthen me, save me. Of him I testify. It's going to be a little rough because you need some pruning. But he knows what he's doing. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon podcast class. This has been class number three, The Atonement of Christ as Taught in the Book of Mormon.